0: Hmm. give me Jesus. Wow. Only John tells us this story, one of the most powerful stories of the whole New Testament of Jesus and Lazarus and what happened in that cemetery many years ago. Uh, We're going to have to bring up the house lights. If I can't see y'all's faces, this is not going to work well. There we go. that's better. I remember that was advice I got as a kid about cemeteries. Don't go alone. I always thought that was good advice. And I think it's especially good advice. I think maybe it's close to the advice that this whole passage gives us when it comes to cemeteries. Don't go alone. At least don't go without Jesus. He changes everything. I remember when I was a young pastor, I preached at a church. My very first little church, it was called Midway. We don't know what it was Midway Between. That had long since lost its history. But it had been there since almost the Civil War. And uh, this this little country church that, that I was now pastoring had a cemetery right across the road. I don't know that the road had always been there. But a road now went between the church and the cemetery. Both of those were our property. And I, I was never really sure which generation was looking over the other, you know what I mean? If the one across the street was looking over us in the church or those in the church were looking over the cemetery grounds, or I think it kind of went both ways, you know? And lots of times since we were the caregivers of the cemetery and I was in my 20s, I was often out there with the young crew that would weed eat that thing. You ever weed-eated two acres of cemetery before? There's a lot of weed-eating around tombstones, you know? Those weed whackers would be buzzing out there on Friday afternoon. It would knock out the cemetery. And then sometimes I'd come back on Saturday, be preparing my message and wanting to inspect the work that we did before. I'd take a break, walk out over into the cemetery, and walk around on that freshly cut grass. And it was then that I really noticed not the grass, but the tombstones. I noticed that a lot of the names on the tombstones were also the names of the living relatives still on the rolls at the church. And so that gave me some connection with some of those gravestones that went back even before the Civil War. But most of them were a mystery to me. All that was left of that life was just a stone and a name and maybe some numbers. There's something about gravestones. They have a way of silencing a voice. Once we die, we no longer have a voice. And there was often times that I wish that I understood what happened during the dash. Between the birth and the death of that particular person. But that person's voice couldn't tell me that story. Their voice had been silent sometimes decades, sometimes almost centuries before. I was glad that I took that advice one time going to a cemetery. We're talking about death this morning. I just want to lighten the mood a little bit. Is that all right? It was a funeral service I'll never forget. Aunt Emily had passed away and Aunt Emily was a similar size to her casket, extra large. They actually had an order, an extra large casket. She was a woman of substantial size, probably weighed over 400 pounds. And the casket pallbearers were, were there at the graveside. The hearse pulled up. I got out. I was a new pastor. This was my first church ever. I was trying to remember all those notes that my dad gave me about what to properly do at, at, at a graveside service, and I was looking over those. Okay, go to the head of the casket, Right. finish with the Lord's Prayer, Right. say a prayer of committal, Right. I was taking it all in, and I wasn't paying attention to what the cemetery director was saying to those who were carrying the casket they got their instructions we started over the hill the other people were still gathering in their cars we were going to go down and get the casket in place before the crowd gathered under the tent you know those tents where the family gathers at the graveside the green indoor outdoor carpet underneath you know you've been to one of those before and all that was set up down there what the what he told them that he didn't tell me was there was a bit of a catastrophe the day before when they dug the grave. It had been raining in town, and when they, when they dug the grave, they hit an old water main for this ancient town in Georgia called Buford that they didn't know was there. And the grave had flooded out, and in Georgia, the clay dries slowly, so there was no time to repack the grave and redig the hole, it was about three times the size that it actually should have been. But the secret was this, and that was though the hole couldn't be repacked, they had covered it up with that green indoor-outdoor carpet. They just pulled it up close to the scaffolding and then secured the other side tight with cement blocks that would keep back the crowd once they got there, Right? And everything would be okay, and I wondered why the pallbearers on this huge casket on one side split off and went to both ends and loaded the casket from behind the scaffolding. But I had things to do. I was a new pastor. I was trying to keep up with what was going on. I wasn't at the head of the casket. I had to get there. And I took a first step that never seemed to stop. I stepped in front of the casket, and as the world was coming up and passing me, The only thing I realized I had to grab was Aunt Emily's casket with my one free hand. I reached out and grabbed the spray of flowers on top, and it started to slide, and I dug in my hands, and then the whole casket with Aunt Emily started coming in that hole with me, and I realized in that spare moment that I was about to be buried with Aunt Emily if I didn't do something quick, so I stiff-armed you know, Heisman Trophy style, as best I could, that casket and kept it in place and then started climbing this green indoor-outdoor, now curtain, up out of that eight-foot hole. I was knee-deep in mud and muck and goo, but I was coming out of that hole. I clawed my way out, got up to the top, still flabbergasted, still completely out out of breath. Somehow I had hung on to my Bible and my notes to get up out of that thing in the other hand, and all I could hear was wheezing. I looked around, and every one of those pallbearers were on the ground, slapping each other on the back, laughing themselves silly, and I said, you fools, get up. They're about to get here, and at that time, my black preacher's robe, which had become an ineffective parachute as I went into that hole, had now come back down, and it was over my muddied uh, pants, and so I thought I might actually be able to pull this off with some dignity, and I would have. I got through the first part pretty well and finally got to the Lord's Prayer, and I thought I was in the home stretch. That's where it ends, and all the words are there. Everybody knows them. Everyone's saying it along with me, but somewhere between our Father and I think it was, forgive us our trespasses. Something about that forgive us our trespasses reminded one of the pallbearers of what just happened. And unfortunately, he went. <coughs> and when he did, all of them busted out again in laughter. And the rest of the crowd kind of raised one eyebrow and thought, did he tell a joke? Laughter. In a cemetery. Laughter facing death. It it, it wasn't really the right kind of laughter. It wasn't victorious laughter. It was just sniggering laughter. But I'll never forget that day, and those fellows that helped me mow the grass and carry the caskets have never let me forget it since either. Laughter. You know, it's actually possible at a funeral now since Jesus That's kind of the job of a Christian pastor is to stand over a hole in the ground and mock the death that used to mock us. To give hope. The hope that is unlike that for those who have no hope in their mourning. Jesus has transformed the grave. You see, you you live differently if you understand how the story ends. You'll live differently in every moment because of the transforming power that death has lost over you because of Christ's victory for you. His name was Robert Ingersoll. And in a century two ago, he was one of the great agnostics, one of the, the wise men of his day. But as an agnostic, of course, that means that he didn't believe in God, and it shaped the way he thought about death. Why should we postpone our joy to another world? Let us get all we can of the good between the cradle and the grave, all that we can of the truly dramatic. If when death comes, that is the end, we have at least made the best of this life. Now that's about as good as it gets if you're entering a cemetery alone but if that's your understanding if you haven't applied the lazarus story to your own life then as you approach your death you'll probably approach it like robert green ingersoll did and on the back of his funeral bulletin this was read there shall be no singing Courageous, noble, empty, bankrupt. There shall be no singing not at his death. Because without the partnership of Jesus and our death, without his presence at our death, then our death means something very, very different. And Robert Ingersoll, though he never really understood God, in fact, he considered God a tyrant. He misunderstood our Heavenly Father completely. I wonder if he really ever took seriously the witness of our Lord at all. But his view left him with no room for singing. But we folks are those in our death to trust that Jesus shows up when he does, my friends, he changes everything. He changed everything for the widow of Nain. John just doesn't tell that story. He leaves all the impact of Jesus overcoming death pretty much to this story of Lazarus. But you remember the, the widow of Nain, death has tr- twice robbed her. Robbed her of her husband and now robbed her of her only son. And she's in a funeral procession. Only Jesus knows how to stop a funeral procession. That doesn't usually happen in this world, but Jesus is not of this world. And when he shows up, he stops the funeral procession as it's leaving the city, tells her not to cry, and then speaks to a corpse. Young man, I tell you, get up. And he did. And for some reason, the scriptures say, and he began to speak. I guess because dead men don't speak. And now this kid was fully alive, and I love the way the scripture ends, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Imagine that. She, she was going to anticipate an internal separation from her son, And Jesus makes a reunion out of it. You know, he does the same thing for us at every graveside. He promises a reunion when all we can see is separation. He still does that. And he still transforms our cemeteries as he transformed that one for the widow of Nain. Think of Jairus. Jairus and his daughter, he's asked Jesus to come. We don't know if... Jesus knew Jairus well. He might be a stranger asking this, but but Jesus' heart breaks for this man who says his daughter is dying. Please come and pray for my child. And Jesus goes with him. And there he sends out the mourners, as he so often did, in their hopeless tirade of anguish. He sends the mourners out, and he turns to the little girl, and he says, Talitha, come, which means little child. Arise. And she did. And Jesus said, get her something to eat. Because little dead girls don't have appetites. But this little girl did. Jesus gave her life. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus raised the dead. That is who Jesus was. And wherever he went, he brought all that he was with him. And so, when Lazarus is sick, here in John 11, that's where the scripture is that we just saw depicted uh, in uh, Shakespearean King James language. There, in uh, John chapter 11, and the reason we did it in video today instead of reading the passage is the passage is just 57 verses long, but every every word is a, is important. And we'll revisit some of those here uh, this morning, but for the sake of the time, I, I let the video uh, tell the story. But here we learned that Jesus, in verse five, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's all of verse five. For some reason, John wanted to make that absolutely clear, because he's going to tell us something that doesn't make sense. If Jesus raised strangers from the dead, if he healed those, the Hardly knew that one of his best friends, Lazarus, surely the Lord of life, would do something extravagant for him. And so Mary and Martha, thinking that Jesus doesn't know what's going on, send word to Jesus to come. The one whom you love is sick. And Jesus does something that is really kind of hard to explain. He waits two days, it says, in the place where he was why would he wait around two days? It's almost as if the disciples had been trying to make sense of it. And some of them must have decided that since he just left Jerusalem under threats of being stoned to death, why were they trying to stone him? Because stones silence voices. And they wanted to silence Jesus. And so they were going to stone him. And under the threat of stoning, Jesus has left that and gone back out into the wilderness, the place where the scriptures say John baptized. And so out of arm's reach of their death threats, Jesus now is visited by someone sent by Mary and Martha saying, Lord Jesus, come. The one whom you love is sick. And I know what you can do for him. He stays there two days. The disciples must assume that it's because, well, why go back to Bethany? That's just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus isn't foolish enough to go back and give his life to be stoned. He's still got much to do and still a message to reach many people. Jesus certainly wouldn't go back to Jerusalem. And finally, when Jesus says, no, no. Lazarus is dead. It's been two days. Lazarus is dead. Come and go with me. Thomas says what? Thomas says, well, let us go die with him. He understood the threat. And so they go back to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus says, tells the disciples then that I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sakes so that you might believe. And, and that's John's whole point of writing his Bible, of writing his book, his gospel. It says in John 20, verse 30, And these stories were written, these signs were written, that you might believe, and believing have life in his name. See? There's, a, there's a level of belief that becomes life in his name. And John is wanting to raise us to to that level of belief. And he tells us these signs that we might understand who Jesus is and have the kind of faith not just to mentally assent to who Jesus might have been, but to lean on who he was to such an extent that we now live our lives differently. Our lives are transformed. We've been given life because we've believed that Jesus is the Son of God and believing We now have life in his name. There's many things the disciples believe. But they don't understand quite Jesus' power over death. They've trusted his power over death in the situations where he's seen it. They would attest to Jairus' daughter. They would attest to what happened on the road outside of Nain. But there's a deeper level to believe where that belief starts applying to me. My life, my loved ones. The cemeteries that I must walk in, either as one who's letting go of a loved one or as someone who is being let go as the loved one. Either way, it's good advice. Don't go to that cemetery alone. He delays two days, the scriptures say, so they can believe. And when Mary and Martha meet him on the road, Martha is the first to say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Of course, that makes sense. Jesus healed everyone. So if Jesus comes, Lazarus would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Statement of faith or statement of doubt? Yes. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's not with her at first. Mary was the one who sat at Jesus' feet, the one who was a warm-hearted, wanted always to be in Jesus' presence uh, kind of gal. And a passionate woman like that, maybe Martha realized she must manage this situation. She was going to go talk to Jesus first. (laughs) Save Mary and Jesus the encounter. Well, you've been there, haven't you? Where you prayed for your grandmother, but she died. Where you watched your husband Suffer there on the cancer ward for weeks and the suffering that lingered made no sense at all and all your prayers to God who you know can heal didn't. What do you do with that? That's very real. And there's a level of believing that God can that can very easily become blame. God, why didn't you? And that's where Mary and Martha are. In that strained place to believe not just believe that God can, but believe in nothing in his character that love would if love considered this the best way it's the kind of belief not only in god's ability but the belief in in god's very character jesus says to mary and martha i am the resurrection i am the life do you believe this and 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 martha says lord jesus you know that 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 I believe that he will be resurrected on the last day. Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe the teaching. I believe that someday that will apply. (laughs) And Jesus makes the point, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. That's who I am and when I am and where I am, all that comes with me. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And in the scriptures, the actual scriptures, it doesn't say Jesus told Martha to go get Mary. Later on, when, Mary, when Martha shows up, she says to Mary, the Lord has asked me to tell you to come. But the way John tells the story, something's happening in Martha. She comes with blame. Blame. But she leaves to go get married because her heart now is anticipating something. <laughs> she, she's come to believe, yes, yes, at uh, the last day. But Jesus ain't finished. Come on. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life, and I have no idea what that means. But I'm not going to let my sister miss out on it. He's about to do something. I see it in his eye and Martha runs and gets Mary and Mary and Martha meet them there and there was I don't know why Jesus didn't go onto the house but at the house there were there were there were mourners and back in those days pre-Jesus the professionals at most funerals weren't the pastors they were the mourners the mourners bore the weight of the funeral They would wail and they would carry on and they would mourn long after the family was completely wore out by their grief. It was their job to make sure that the anguish continued and it was not left unnoticed. And something about that environment, I don't think Jesus and Mary wanted them in that environment. And they meet him at the tomb, and, and, and Mary says what Martha has previously said, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. And just like it's depicted there, it says, and, and Jesus took them in, uh, Jesus was with them, and he was deeply moved in spirit. Jesus wept. Whenever Jesus shows up in a cemetery... He's always there for two purposes. One is to weep with those who weep. And the other is to bring the joy of life in the face of death. I love what Max Lucado says. He he says that there was a time where he invited a guest to his house and and this guy was one of those illusionists, magicians. Maybe he, he, he was kind of a, a party show, showman. And his daughters were amazed by his tricks of hand. You know, the, the coin would disappear and then the coin would appear. And kids love that kind of stuff. I do that kind of stuff with kids sometimes. And, and you know, their, their eyes pop whenever the coin disappears. They gasp. And whenever the coin reappears behind the ear, they're amazed. And at first, he said, as a father looking on with this, he was pleased and and okay with his kids just being amazed. Amazement's okay. And he said the longer he watched it, the more troubled he became. Something didn't sit right with him. This guy, despite his spell over his daughters, was selling a lie. This was deception. This wasn't appreciation for the sleight of hand. This, this, this was the lie of magic. And all of a sudden, he found himself almost irresistibly breaking up the show. It's, 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 it's in his sleeve. It's in, it's, it's in his sleeve. And sure enough, it would be. No, no, it's, it's, it's in his other hand. And he, he caught himself. He almost felt like he was being rude, spoiling the show. But there's something about a good father that doesn't appreciate his kids being deceived, being fooled, being hoodwinked, being manipulated. Jesus gets to that tomb and he's tired of death's swagger. He's come to conquer death. And something I think moves him deeply that it still has such a sway over us that can't see through it to the other side. And God's a good father, and he doesn't like his kids deceived, and he doesn't like them fooled, and he dang sure doesn't want them intimidated. And so he says, don't you understand, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't even give it victory now. You can be victorious facing death. You don't have to be bullied by it all your life. Wonder if every act of faithfulness eventually is mocked by death as if it means nothing and as if your life is left behind, forgotten, it never had an effect. No, No. That's the lie of Satan. And Jesus is going to break up the party. He's going to reveal the truth. Did I not say, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus wept. Behold how he loved him, the observer said. It was obvious that Jesus himself was heartbroken with the death of his friend. It was authentic to him, though he even knew it's sham. His heart was broken. I think his heart was broken, especially for Mary and Martha, who were weeping, assuming that death had the last word. Lord Jesus, had you been here, but that opportunity is now past. He is now dead. And he's not just a little bit dead. His body's not still warm. He's four days dead. He's in the tomb dead. We've already gone to the cemetery. He's already sealed behind the rock. It's the fourth day. Lord, don't you know he stinketh? He, in their understanding, spiritually, they believed that the spirit sometimes lingered for up to three days in the community and around the tomb, still somehow connected to uh, that bodily presence, right? But, but on the fourth day, they believe that on the fourth day, even the spirit left. So in their m- mind, by saying, and it was the fourth day, what they're saying is not only was this chap dead, Lazarus was not just dead, he was dead and gone, Opportunity passed, story sealed, voice silenced. It's over. Mary and Martha, Martha at least knows that Jesus can do and that God can do whatever Jesus asks of him. and so she leans in to that unknown with Jesus and Jesus says roll away the stone and they roll away a stone and the only voice that death cannot silence The voice of the author of life. The voice of the giver of life. Shouts, Lazarus, come forth. (laughs) Oh, man, wouldn't it have been cool to be there? From the stillness of that tomb, there's something in there. Did you hear that? I wonder what it sounded as he scooched, bound up in the grave's clothes, a a wrap around his head. Dead men, don't scooch. His head was wrapped because he would never breathe or speak again. His body was bound because it would never move again. But Jesus had spoken. (laughs) Jesus gets the last word. Folks, if you're in a cemetery and you're there as a disciple, just observing what God does, know this, that, that if you're a disciple like Thomas and you've said, well, I guess the risk is worth it. If he's to go to Jerusalem, let's go die with him. If you believe like that, you'll never look at death the same way again. If you b- believe like Thomas came to believe, death will only be a consequence that this life overcomes and that your faithfulness in this life mocks. That's if you're a disciple. If you're just looking on, sometimes it's much more personal when we enter cemeteries. We're like Mary and Martha, and we've lost someone, someone that we love. But no matter how, those circumstances want to shrink your faith or steal your faith to turn belief into blame. Know that this kind of faith holds that before. Blame cannot breathe in resurrection faith. Blame dies. Blame heals. The heart that is wounded somehow gives itself to God because Jesus is not what that grave mocks you to believe, that Jesus doesn't care, that God doesn't care, that because he hasn't moved yet, that he doesn't make the last move. Jesus weeps there because he cares And Jesus cares, and he still comes, and he still weeps with you, and his heart breaks that that person's gone. It's not just that he's pitying you. He weeps with you as he weeps with Mary and Martha, and he understands he bears your loss as if it's his own because it is. No matter who you've lost, (coughs) be certain of this. Jesus loves them even more than you. Don't let death steal that certainty from you. Because that certainty itself is part of the healing of grieving. And finally, if you're the one that's in the tomb, if your voice has been silenced, The voice that you have trusted in life and in death has not been silenced. It's still just as real as it ever was. And he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. In 1 Thessalonians 4 it reads, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, don't miss that. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and someday Jesus is coming back, and despite what that actor said in Tombstone, I'm coming, and all H E L L is coming with me. I see it at every OSU football game. You ever seen that there? And eh, it's coming with me. You know? No, no, no. Jesus is coming again, and all heaven is coming with him, and everything that stands opposed to him will someday bow. He is victor. And you are his and he is yours. And everything in this world that seeks to defy it is just a last gasp of defiance before the defining word is spoken. By he who is Lord, he who is almighty, he who is savior, he is to be worshipped forever and ever. Amen. Amen. For this we say to you, and I love the way it says it. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Paul's not just guaranteeing this from his conviction. He's saying, remember that voice. That voice that death cannot defy. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep in death. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Same voice. Same voice. With the voice of the archangels and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's coming and all heaven with him. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and this we shall always thus we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words <laughs> He comes down from that display of victory to say now y'all comfort each other with these words Oh my gosh What comfort it is that even though someday it may seem that death has had the last word, and we won't even have a voice because we're the ones that are dead to argue with it. Nevertheless, our Lord always has his voice. And someday, as he called Lazarus from the tomb, he will call our bodies from the sea, from the crypts, from the urns, And somehow, in the miraculous power of the resurrection, that will come with him. And those of us who have died before he comes will somehow be gathered up, not in these bodies just restored as Lazarus' was, but in resurrection bodies. Spiritual bodies, alive forever, as life should have been and as our bodies have always meant to be, somehow will be restored as Jesus was after he was resurrected. The kind of bodies that do things that we don't understand, that walk through walls and yet nevertheless eat fish with our friends. (laughs) Eye Eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And folks, my friends, you can not only know him, you can love him. Because right now you do have a voice. Right now he has given you the power to choose him as Lord and as Savior. And if you choose him as Lord and as Savior, it doesn't end there. It's not just your commitment and then hold your breath until you die. It becomes a living relationship here and now with him by the power of the Holy Spirit where you become just like Lazarus was to him, not just some person, but his friend. Tell the Lord, the one that he loves is sick it's died is in need of his voice tell him tell him the one who has the voice to which death dies tell him tell him that chris buskirk is in a grave <laughs> he'll come he'll come Someday in his time, according to his show, according to his calendar, according to his program, he will do it in such a way that will be beyond the imagining of anyone who's ever lived to anticipate it. This is that Jesus. John wants us to know it, that we might believe not just believe that it's a truth, an objective truth that someday will apply, but know that this Jesus is alive and with us now, and the one who speaks to us is the same voice that will someday speak us out of the grave and call us by name, Chris, come forth, and by gosh, I will. And I hope I won't be such a snotty mess on that day. I'll be in resurrection form and nothing will ever separate me again from the presence of my Lord Savior. That sweet breath of heaven that helps me breathe every other breath in this world. Do you believe it? Well, then, my friends, you need never again go to a cemetery alone. Lord Jesus, because you live, we can taunt death. Because you live, we can live faithful lives no matter what it costs us because we know who is our rewarder. Lord Jesus, because you died and resurrected it in, in, in our place, because, Lord Jesus, you said from the cross it is finished and it was everything that was necessary for making us right with God. You had done on our behalf You said it is finished. And on Resurrection Sunday, that empty grave was God saying, Amen. Amen. It's so. And let his death be proclaimed until he comes again. And until he comes in the face of death, let us be people, Lord God, that sing. That sing at our funerals. Let there be singing. In our cemeteries, let there be victory. In our cemeteries, Lord God, we will never walk alone again. Because you are always with those whom you love. And those who are called according to your purpose. Those whom you have called friend. So, Lord God, it's appropriate this morning as we as a community of faith sing that we invite anyone within the sound of our voices who have yet to know you as their closest friend to you at this altar. That there might not be one of us In this place, Lord God, that each of us might never again be alone, especially in any cemetery. As we sing, if you want that friendship, the Lord who came to Mary and Martha comes to you now in this place. Would you come and meet him? Would you come and surrender to him? Would you come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins that I might live a life that pleases you. That you might live with me every moment of my life in victory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm.